the round bits <laughs> region there at the bottom, um, and then sort of the the spherical bit goes out. There are and, there are children and listening. There are my becomes, mother is listening to this. Yes, that, that's, that beca- that's it looks enough. like a finger. All right. We're live. Hey, I'm Parker Kirkman, joined as always by Landon Castle. This is our podcast about all motorsports. We dive into all of it. On today's show, we have new reviews. Finally, we ca- we talk about free NASCAR races. Kyle Larson peels back the curtain on Cup C- Series driver income. We got IndyCar NASCAR crossover that didn't happen. Kyle Busch's almost big sponsor. A new F1 track with a very questionable design. Uh, Max Verstappen versus Lewis Hamilton's driving styles. And are we in the era of terrible F1 team names? Lastly, we've got a little precursor to the Rolex 24 and Brad Pitt. Let's do it. It's the Money Lap Podcast. We start with the PR lap, Landon. I love it. Let's talk about you. Let's talk about us. Oh, us? Well, me first. I guess, yeah, I should start uh, with what I did last week. Just a quick behind the scenes of what I've been doing. Uh, if you've been on my social media, you may have noticed I was driving down to Virginia with my buddy Matt Hardigree, who's the publisher at the Autopian, which is a new car website called the Ultimate Car Culture website. Uh, we went down and did a really cool deal with the Diplomatic Security Services, which are basically like the Secret Service, except with one big difference. They are constantly in hostile territory. I went down there and did their training, which was awesome. They have this incredible facility that's probably the ultimate driver training facility uh, in the world. And they are probably the leaders in driver training outside of anything racing-wise. A lot of the people there that do the training are motorsports fans, that sort of stuff. So it was a really cool adventure. I also am reviewing the 2024 Range Rover Sport, which will be on the Autopian here soon. Um, and getting to do a lot more car stuff. Many of you may remember I had a car show called Proving Grounds for three seasons on NBC Sports. Matt Hardigree was one of the producers on that, and I've wanted to get back into car stuff. I'm glad to be doing it. Finally, have the time, had the means, had the opportunity uh, with my friends at the Autopian. So I'm going to try to do a lot more of that here in uh, in 2024. So, and we just were discussing how you might be able to help me with some car stuff from Castle Motors. Well, so yeah, and did I you- bury the lead? <laughs> No, it, did did you real? Is this where you realize that you need help with drifting? That you're just not a drifty boy. That is true. No, I've noticed this for a while, and viewers of Proving Grounds would have been tricked into thinking I could drift better than I I have because we had Lee Keen there who can drift really well. But it's really funny, and I'm I don't want to go too too deep into this because I'm gonna we're gonna do some stuff around this. But drifting for me goes against everything of my natural intuition in terms of driving a race car, right? Car gets into a slide, I look left, I correct the slide, get car back straight as fast as possible so I can drive the fastest corner pos- you know, way or thing possible. I used to be able to really be able to drift really well back in high school in snow with a car that you might help me get again. And I thought that would just be so natural to go drifting. It has not been a natural process for me. I don't get to do it enough, but this year I've decided is the year I get good at drifting. Whether it takes me a month or all the way till next December, this December, uh, I'm going to get good at drifting. So that's on my my goals this year, on top of winning the next Xfinity race. There you go. <laughs> It'll make me a better driver. It'll make me a better race car driver. <laughs> I don't know about you, but drifting I've found tough, especially road cars for some reason. 
So I'm going to get good at it, though. Um, you know, I'm, I met uh, – I, I haven't talked to him in a while, but um, at one point in time I talked to Von Gittin Jr. an awful lot, and he uh, he was pretty well convinced that he's got the best car control of anybody in the world because of his drift, drifting experience. So hmm. I've seen Lee Keen, who was the third guy on Proving Grounds with Sam Smith and myself and did a lot of the drift stuff. Man, he was on another level. If that guy wanted to be a stunt driver in Hollywood, no doubt in my mind he could. I think he's done a little bit of it but just wasn't into that world. He, We did the coin test with from, from Driven, you know, where you try to pick up a coin with a tire, a quarter. Mm-hmm. I kid you not. I think it was like three tries with a BMW M2. He nailed it. It didn't obviously go into the tire, but he nailed it up into the camera. A quarter. <laughs> At like 80 miles an hour. I'm not kidding. So, and I was like, so you're saying that Driven truly is a documentary in a real it is story? It's actually a documentary, and it's what I it, want to do this year. Is that I want to get good enough. Hollywood cinema. Yeah, that I want to be able to hit three coins on the track just like Driven. Let's, Let's get That's on my with the show. Let's get okay. on with the show. My other pact to you all, just remember, if you're watching this on YouTube, please like, subscribe, leave us a comment below. It helps us. Send it to three friends if you like this episode. Let us know why you like it uh, and, what you, and tell them what you like about it. We also have been asking for reviews out there. We did get new reviews, as we mentioned, on Apple Podcasts. This Jimmy T24 said, my favorite racing podcast. Big fan of Parker, but he and Landon compliment each other nicely. Always entertaining and informative. They cover a variety of racing forums, and they do it with great collaboration. You won't be disappointed with this show. Share it with three friends for me, please. Hey, thanks, Jimmy. Hey, thanks, Um, Jimmy. Yeah, that was a good one. Let's see here. Uh, Doggone04 said, year-round. Glad to finally have a motorsport show that is pretty much year-round. Keep it up for the years to come. Yes, we are dedicated. We haven't even made it to one year yet. That will be in May. That's awesome. And, uh, yeah. But the pretty much was because we did take about three-week break around the holidays. We are here. And that was nice. It felt good. <laughs> um, here's, I like this review because RKE24 said great perspective. Um, I always appreciate the reviews that complement our deep dives into topics because you and I – Anybody that listens to us knows how we can go down rabbit holes and really pick things apart or even take a really deep, nuanced perspective to topics. I love arguing both sides of a topic. Um, maybe it's just like a personal challenge of mine to be able to take one side of a debate and then to take the other side of the debate. So um, thank you, RKE24, for just complimenting that uh, they really enjoy how Parker and Landon deep dive into po- topics and other racing podcasts. Uh, or, or where other racing podcasts just stra- scratch the surface. Keep up the great content. Bam. We got deep dive. Love there. I like that. That's good stuff. Spotify's uh, a little quiet. That's yeah, okay. they're a little quiet. Uh, YouTube, speaking of though. sound, you've been asked to move your mic a little bit away from your mouth so you're not talking directly oh, oh, into it. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> Give us a little side on the mic. Give us a little side. Sorry. For the listeners that were just listening and heard some pops, producers work on it as we speak. Just put it a little bit to the side. A little bit to the side. Okay. Yeah, you, there you go. Talk a little side. Uh, YouTube, Anita Garrison said, I very seldom, rarely, hardly ever listen to anybody's podcast through Apple or the soon-to-be-defunct Google podcast, but on the extremely rare occasion I have, I have yet to figure out how to leave a rating or review. Anita, that's fine. We appreciate the YouTube comment. <laughs> You're doing great. Pumble uh, <laughs> the Water Boy, 317, the cheesy thumbnails are hilarious, but they get views. Lol, great episode again. 
Thank you. I agree. Remember the pact. We're going to keep doing the thumbnails 10 out of 10, but you got to send it to three friends. We just got some fireworks on Landon's camera once again. (laughs) (laughs) I am still, the gestures on my MacBook Pro are still alive. (laughs) Awesome. Good job. Oh my gosh. Speaking of still alive, the collector world in racing is alive as ever. And if you are a racing enthusiast <laughs> looking for high-quality diecast and apparel, look no further than Spoiler Diecast, one of the fastest-growing companies in the industry. They are alive and well. What sets them apart? Well, I will tell you, Parker. At SpoilerDiecast.com, they pride themselves on excellent service, which means all orders ship, either same or next day, ensuring you get your hands on your favorite products in no time you can take that diecast to the track on a last second deal when you won free tickets on your local radio station to get to the nascar race and go get your favorite driver's autograph did does that work did that make that any sense great so I... they offer free shipping on orders over 20 dollars. that's right you can get smooth and affordable shipping and shopping experience with SpoilerDieCast.com. Over 800 unique products in stock. Spoiler Diecast has one of the largest inventories in the industry, which is extremely important because the Diecast world, it's been tough sometimes to figure out where to get stuff and who has what. But you know that Spoiler Diecast is not just focused on NASCAR. They've got dirt, sprint cars, IndyCar, F1. Um, they also have apparel and um, other merchandise, which I think is another really good point because the whole merchandise world and t-shirts in motorsports has been crazy in the last couple of decades. You never really know where to get everything. So spoilerdiecast.com. When we first started working with them almost a year ago, it was just diecast, right? And now they're expanding their offerings. They are growing. This is uh it's been a lot of fun working with them. Love those guys. And just a shout out to them. They reached out to me when we, we announced that we're going to have a die cast for the Big Machine Racing Spike Light Coolers 48 coming out this year and said, hey, we got an idea. Why don't we do an exclusive autograph version at Spoiler Diecast? So if you order my diecast through Spoiler Diecast, yeah. use Money Lap, you will get it signed. We're going to find out how many of you are into this. But if you do that, I will sign it and you will get an autographed version from Spoiler Diecast, so I appreciate and the support. And if you end up with both one of Parker's and one of mine signed, because I signed a bunch, there was only a few, if you have them both, send a picture on social media, and I will screen cap Damn. it and sign the screen cap <laughs> and tweet it back to you. And, and then, then I'm going to print it will out, screen cap sign that it. and sign that. <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then I want to print we'll it out and keep send this us, rolling. We'll just send keep it rolling. Address and we'll send it there too. And once you get that, if you would send that envelope back, we'll sign it on as well. And this will never stop. <laughs> oh my gosh. Parker, we had one of our most incredible <laughs> accomplishments last week with the money lap. We did. We, it was awesome. I think that we it was one of the first times and you know what we didn't set out when we when we decided to start this I don't think we set out to be activists I don't I don't really feel like I wanted to take on the responsibility of activism in our world and in our community um sometimes I think activism chooses you you don't choose activism but after our um, crack journalism, is that what they say? Something like that. Yeah. After our, you know, 
uh, just pure love of the sport and love of the industry and our journalistic research and getting um, absolute powerhouse of a journalist, Bob Pockers, on our show last week and discussion about um, NASCAR's peculiar decision to not allow fans uh, into the Clash heat race suspiciously simply hours after we did our broadcast and released our show nascar reversed their decision and not just decided to allow fans in they're gonna they're just gonna open the gates and allow fans into the heats at the clash for free yep you know i I mean i'm not taking credit i don't know i don't want to say that the money lap you know no no moving and shaking in the space um but we did it. We saved NASCAR. We saved NASCAR, and we are really appreciative of the support out there. And, it's, of course, <laughs> one of our most loyal listeners, it obviously, is Ben Kennedy. So we appreciate that. Thank you very much for listening, my man. Uh, big fan of yours. But you, the one part about this that's even cooler than anything else, it's going to be free. You can go see NASCAR Cup Series cars in person, downtown L.A., Doing practice, heat races, NASCAR Mexico, all of it free. I don't think there is a time in the last 50 years you could see a NASCAR Cup Series car racing. Not just testing or practicing, but racing. Literally wheel-to-wheel battle of the biggest stars in NASCAR Cup Series free. So that's pretty cool. Thanks for listening. I think it is awesome. Ben, we appreciate you. And uh, blink twice if you're in Milwaukee. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, I, I think we don't have to spend too much time on this, but the last point I will make after we wrap a whole bow on this, I think it was a total oversight from NASCAR. I don't think it was a plan. Um, I think it was a schedule change, and uh, you know they saw it, they caught it, they made a correction, and now it's kind of interesting. You're you know hopefully hopefully a lot of people show up. Hopefully, have we like five thousand people. I love that. That'd be awesome. And we like to say this. The newsletters read by the industry insiders. This podcast is listened to by industry insiders. Maybe the industry we itself. We do know that. We do because know that. We do get we do get reach out. One thing. Okay, the, before we can move on with our show, the one thing yep. that has blown me away about having a a newsletter and b a podcast is that people actually listen. Because <laughs> the 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 type of people in my contact list that will text me and say that they listen to the podcast. I'm like, I had no idea that you would even be interested in listening to this show. NASCAR executives, team presidents, crew chiefs, engineers, team members. They, um, you know, people that love racing, they want to hear about racing. So it makes it fun. The list goes on. Remember, send it to three friends. This is the podcast everyone's listening to. Let's move on. Uh, We have a discussion topic request from a listener out there as we try to interject our community into this. Why is NASCAR not demonstrating the Garage 56 in the Rolex 24? Does it even need to? Has it proven what it needs to prove? Um, I'm just going to go out on a limb. I haven't really researched this too much, but I'm going to essentially say that, yes, it proved what it needed to do. It accomplished what what they wanted out of it. And most of all, it was about representing NASCAR, you know, an American stock car style car, abroad in front of a huge international audience and that's what it did it got the whole motorsports world not just in the united states but the world talking about it it won you know i think in so many respects i saw it winning you know internet awards is the greatest moment in motorsports in 2023 
um, it did everything you hoped, and it spread the great word of NASCAR to a whole new audience. So, no, I don't see any reason, you know, the Rolex 24 being in their backyard, um, not a, you know, although it had a record crowd last year, a record crowd at the Rolex 24 this year, and I'm assuming a record crowd will happen again, that crowd very much overlaps with Mm -hmm. uh, NASCAR in general. So I don't see any reason they had to run it. Yeah, I, I would agree. I don't think they have to do it again. But I do look forward to whatever the next iteration of that car is. You know, do they mm-hmm. do they take a couple of them to the 24, uh, to Le Mans? Do they get their own class? Do they create their own class? Do they do the Rolex 24? Who knows? I, I would love to see some further iteration. We'll see. I just think it was also um, quite expensive. So <laughs> I was just going to say that. Yeah. <laughs> I was just going to say that. Uh, yeah, things in motorsports. Here's, okay, it here's an alternative answer to uh, <laughs> the listener's question. I, I hate that we didn't uh, give any credit to this question. I don't know who the listener was, but uh, why is NASCAR not demonstrating demonstrating Garage 56 and Rolex 24? Because it would probably cost about 300 grand just to get the whole car down there and the team and uh, mm. put the thing on track. There you go. And that was Garrett Smithley that reached out with that question. Oh. So NASCAR driver, listener of the Money Lab, dedicated listener. Uh Big deal. Big announcement. So as of today, it was announced that NASCAR is going to add some rumble strips in turn one at Watkins Glen, where we've been going out into the runoff. Now, from what I understand, some drivers uh, had an issue with us going out there in terms of how it reprofiled the corner, that sort of thing, which I'm fine with. Because this, from what I understand, is an attempt to basically make a natural barrier that you don't want to go over. Will we be saying there's track limits? Will you have a line that if you cross over, like Formula One, that you will then be dinged five seconds or your lap deleted? No, that will not be happening. So this is not track limits. It is a natural attempt at requiring cars to stay within the area that they want. Um, we'll see if it works. I, have no, I haven't seen any particular of the particulars. I guess this came from the driver council. Um, but I'm, I'm open for it. I'm all ears. But I don't want to ever hear about deleted laps from going over a line. Yeah, deleted laps is stupid. Track limits is stupid. Rumble strips that are going to tear the whole bottom of the car. I guess we'll see what kind of rumble strips they are. You know, if they're like full on turtles or just something that, you know, takes out some grip. I would love to see grass out there. Like, just make it grass. That's what it used to be. Well, here's the thing. Yeah. I think if it's rumble strips, if you just took the rumble strips and those went out 50 feet further, you're not going to run out there. Because when we that go over the rumble strip. about doing. Yeah, if you go over the rumble strip, there's no grip. So, like, yeah, the go rumble out there strips, all you want, but you'll have no grip. The exit curbing off of turn one, the, the, the exit curbing that we have, which, by the way, it is wide. It's eight yeah. feet wide. Ginormous. It's ginormous, and it's got huge, deep... Um, uh, what do you, what would you call it? Like channels in grooves. it? Grooves. Yeah, grooves. It, yep. there's, it's slick. Like you cannot get power down on it. And actually part of the reason you go out so wide is to get to go over them and then get <laughs> onto the pavement, right? Yep. And then you come back on the track. So it, it, I guess you're right. If they continue that just to be wider, then, then they should be fine. Um, I think that would be – that would completely accomplish what they're hoping to do. And I'm assuming are, with, that's what they're doing. So moving on with this topic, are they doing something else with rumble strips too? Did did you mention that? Or there's so there... there was one other thing mentioned in Bob Pockris's tweet where he said essentially they were redoing some of the the 
curbing in the bus stop, which I didn't fully understand. I'm going to reserve judgment there because I don't, I don't know what the attempt is there. Um, I don't know if it's trying to make it wider so you can go two by two or whatever, but I hope it doesn't mean changing the entry portion, which is the greatest thing to watch a stock car go all four tires in the air at 120 <laughs> miles an hour, you know? So, it's a wild corner. Oh, it's insane. So I hope they don't it's nothing major like that but we'll see i reserve judgment until i can see what they're thinking there but the turn one was one was pretty easy to figure out if they're talking about adding more rumble stripping it just means extending it out because that means you won't be able to put the power down and you won't be incentivized to go out there simple landon we just solved it once again <laughs> you're welcome saving nascar that's what we do here at Money Lab. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, that would be interesting. Hopefully, it would be nice to see the cars stay on track off of turn one as long as they don't mm-hmm. end up uh, like they did at Indy through the uh, chicane there, the whole sausage <laughs> curve or whatever you call it. <laughs> no, that'd be terrible. No, we don't want to see that. The uh, Actually, you know that I posted that video how to make a pass using the bumper at, at Watkins Glen where I moved Connor Bozak out of the way off the mm-hmm. S's, but we both go wide off of turn one. and they're, they're, That video went slightly viral on instagram and there's so many comments from people that don't watch nascar they're like wait why are they leaving the track what track limits <laughs> question mark and it's like no nope, don't got them bro <laughs> nope don't need that don't need that shit here <laughs> oh, oh man. man um so kyle larson speaking yeah we need to talk about this because we can have some fun with it we've alluded to this often on the show i believe and I think it's discussed. It's just not discussed um, very vocally and outwardly, I think, in the, out there. It's, and that is what has sort of happened with Cup Series driver salaries, income, whatever you want to call it, over the last 10 years. And, you know, one of the biggest things that I think is really, as we talk about the team's fighting financial issues, you know, that has reverberated towards the drivers, of course. And sponsorship, I think, has always been one of the biggest things for driver income. Those have struggled in rears as all marketing throughout the world has changed and shifted digitally and that sort of stuff. And so Kyle Larson uh, on the Kenny Wallace show said at one point that he believed top dirt stars make more than half of the cup field. Now, I believe what he means there is essentially in their salary, their you know, basic income from racing as a driver. Uh, you know, I don't think it's easy to quantify all the other outside stuff. But nonetheless, I don't think he's wrong. From the numbers I understand about some of these top dirt guys, you know, they are bringing home high six figures. Top, top mm-hmm. ones can be a seven figures. But, not, but the, the key thing to note with them is that is merchandise sales as well. That is, you know, racing 90 times a year. That is... You know, these doing that, and they're they're a small shop that can win big prize races, fifty, hundred grand. You know, there's a million dollar race, obviously, and then they can sell ten to thirty grand worth of t-shirts each night. And mm-hmm. it's a little different model than a cup driver who is hired more like a traditional sports athlete. Think more like a quarterback who's brought in. Here's your salary. Here's some bonus structure. And if you need to sell partners, you can. But you know, you're not going to be out selling t-shirts out of a trailer yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think he's wrong. It's probably true. Uh, yeah, it's it's not wrong at all. I mean, if it, obviously this headline that I'm reading here 
from Matt Weaver is a tweet from Matt Weaver. Just says Kyle Larson says top dirt stars earn more than most than most NASCAR drivers. Uh, it's a pretty broad statement. There's no numbers thrown in there. I don't know if he if he rattles off any numbers in the article, but I would say, like you said, okay, if we're saying top dirt stars making a million dollars a year, I think um, that doesn't surprise me. I think it's important to understand that when it comes to merchandise sales, the dirt racers have a lot more freedom and control over their merchandise sales than NASCAR drivers, right? The rights to use images of the car, um, I think are a lot easier for them to obtain the, simply the, the rights to sell merchandise on property is probably the biggest one. Mm -hmm. Um, the ability to actually sell out of their own trailers, um, to bring their own trailers and park them at the racetracks. I think their relationships with the tracks and their ability to sell at the track at a lower cost is way more, uh, viable for dirt racers on a weekly basis than a NASCAR driver trying to sell merchandise, um, at Texas motor speedway at Daytona, um, the fees (laughs) and the costs associated with that makes it pretty much a non-starter for NASCAR drivers. So, um, you know, selling merch for a dirt racer is actually a better business. Um, and I'll bet you Kyle Larson probably makes more money off his dirt racing merchandise than he does his own NASCAR merchandise. Oh, I would not guarantee surprise it. me. Guarantee it. Uh, um, I actually, because he I owns know that the business completely. <clears throat> yeah. I know the numbers. He definitely does. He definitely does. Um, it's almost and then as far as earnings on the car, dirt racers, they typically mm-hmm. make 50% of, um, the prize money. That's just kind of a, uh, you know, I'm sure every everything is unique. So, you know, you could jump out and say, oh, no, I know somebody else that makes something different. But generally speaking, my understanding is they make 50%. So, you know, you see a lot of five, ten, twenty thousand $20,000 checks um, that these dirt late model, dirt sprint car drivers, USAC, whatever, um, those guys are generally earning 50%. Um, they're... There's a lot of unique deals, too, with sponsorships. I know some dirt race, race car drivers that um, – <clears throat> actually, one in particular that I can think of where he basically operates the team for the team owner because um, mm-hmm. that's the other thing you got to consider with a lot of these dirt drivers is they're not all just arrive-and-drive drivers, right? Like yep. NASCAR drivers are professional drivers in the sense that they don't contribute – I don't want to say they don't contribute, but they don't build the car. They don't mm-hmm. set up the car. They don't – you know, fuel the hauler, drive the hauler, book hotels, you know, bring their buddies with them to help be mechanics. You know, dirt racers are still operating in a very, a lot of them are still operating on a, a still a very grassroots level where, um, yeah, they're the driver, but they also run the team, right? They might even yep. be the setup guy on the car. And I know of one particular that's a longtime professional dirt, um, uh, USAC driver and his arrangement with his team owners are typically something where he operates the car for the guy that owns the equipment and owns the cars and his compensation to operate all of it is that he keeps the sponsorship money and he gets half, half of the prize money. Right. So, yep. You know, he gets, um, $150,000 in sponsorship and then earns, you know, another couple hundred thousand dollars in earnings, or maybe he's a couple hundred thousand in sponsorship and earns hundred or $200,000 in prize money. Um, that he gets to keep half of it. That's how the guy makes, 
you know, two, 300,000 in a year racing sprint cars. So, Pretty good living. It's uh, not bad. And yeah, he goes <laughs> to a race shop every day. He sets up his cars. He builds his cars. He keeps them together. And, um, and there's a car owner that, you know, wants to be a car owner and wants to be involved. And that's, um, that's how the arrangement works. Yeah. And I think what you pointed out is really important <clears throat> when you're talking about world outlaws and that sort of thing. I was having this discussion with someone as well, and I was trying to explain to them. I'm like, these aren't large organizations often either. You know, these are small groups, and a lot of times it's a couple mechanics, but they're dedicated to doing 90 races and they're mm -hmm. into it, right? And the driver, as you put it, is really integral, you know, to either drive the hauler or, you know, I can think even Steve Kinzer, right? Who probably made a great living racing sprint cars, winning 400 million championships um, <laughs> and smoking cigarettes the whole way, which was one of the coolest things I've ever seen, by the way. Side note. <laughs> but he, uh, you know, he still probably was very integral to all the, the Quaker State being his sponsor and all those things that went on. So mm -hmm. I think it's cool. You know, I think there's two ways to look at this. It's very cool that dirt racing is so big and you can, that it's done, it has such a great dedicated audience that you can make a living doing it. And there's multiple people doing it and they can make a great, good living to a great living. Um, but I also think it is a problem for the NASCAR Cup Series in the perception over the next couple of years in that if it's drivers, you know, it's the most watched motorsport in America, but if the drivers are not paid or making the income of being the stars at the level that this platform is supposedly supposed to be at, right? And the viewership says and all those things, I think that is an odd scenario. Now, does it matter? Will 3 million people st still tune in on average? And will there still be roughly 8 to 10 million people watching the Daytona 500? Most likely, and then it probably doesn't matter. But mm -hmm. I do think it's an odd situation to have a sport signing the biggest TV contract in its history, and yet you have one of your top drivers saying he makes half of what he probably made in 2015, and that they're half the field makes less than a dirt racer that no one in America has ever heard of. You know, I say America. I mean mainstream sports, sorry. Dirt racing is very big, and yes, they can have huge followings. But my point being mainstream mm -hmm. sports, ESPN-style stuff, right? Mm -hmm. It's just weird. I don't know. I mean, I think hockey's gone through this. I think, you know, they've had issues with compensation for their athletes, um, keeping up with the other sports. But I just saw some stuff the other day that NASCAR's viewership is bigger than hockey by a lot. So it's like, they're basically the Xfinity series in terms of average mm -hmm. viewership. So I, I, I don't, this is a very odd thing. And I know this is a discussion that's happening throughout the sport constantly. Um, and I think at some point everyone's just gotta be open about it and be like, look, these, you know, the top level at some point needs to decide to, to find a way that, or find value in these, or the drivers need to create that value or whatever. But, Right now, you know, you've got 100,000 people on average going to races, mm -hmm. eight sellouts last year, three million people watched on TV, and apparently, you know, that's the biggest motorsport in America, and, you know, half your field is not doing better than dirt racing. I don't know. I so, think it's a very odd thing. I, I love, you know, we, I love that we primed this earlier in this show for me to say that I love um, trying to take nuanced stance. I can argue any side of a topic. So we've, we've <laughs> talked about this in the past. 
um, on this show of drivers being the stars and they should make, I think I made this argument that drivers should make $10 million, right? Because they're the star. But I, I, I want to step back in just a second and, and simplify this and just say, hey, we're getting paid a billion dollars for this. Well, how much is the TV contract? It's $1.1 billion combining, obviously, trucks and Xfinity in there. Okay. Uh, let's knock just, out 130 for Xfinity. Big, let's use the one big number. Yeah. Right. Let's okay, just say fine. we're getting ba- we're getting paid a billion dollars for the sole reason that there's a lot of eyeballs that watch hmm? our sport. Oh, hold on. What Siri? Siri just Siri's got something here. to chime in. Oh God, I don't know okay. what's happening here. Go on. <laughs> we're getting paid a billion dollars for the sole reason that a lot of eyeballs watch our sport. Right. You yep. follow, you tracking here? I'm ca- okay. I'm listening. My phone is freaking so, out. <laughs> so, uh, at the end of the day, w- w- what are they tuning in for? Are they tuning in to watch cars? Are they tuning in to watch drivers? Are they tuning in to watch engineers? Are they tuning in to watch crew chiefs? Are they tuning in to see these incredible venues? Right? What What are these fans? What is it exactly that's drawing a billion dollars worth of eyeballs? And and it's good. The, I mean, the the real the the true answer is that it's a combination of all of those things, right? Mm-hmm. But what is the right amount in each bucket, right? What's the where is the incentive actually lie? How much of that percentage of billion dollars of those eyeballs are tuning in because of drivers, right? Yeah. Is it fifty percent? Is it ten percent? Is it one percent? Right, because right now, if you look at the amount of money that's spent on the sport out of that billion dollars that comes in, right, the amount of money that's paid out and spent in the sport, and that's not—I guess—that's not all the money that comes into the sport because you have sponsorship revenue and all this stuff. But let's just say that billion dollars that comes into the sport right there, and then gets dispersed to the teams, right? What percentage of that is going to drivers? One percent, two percent. Five percent? I don't know. I, I guess we'd have to. I'd have to pencil it out a little bit more. But then you have to ask yourself: Is that if it's one percent? If it's two percent? If it's you know five percent? Is that a? Is that in line with what NASCAR thinks their drivers are valued at? Right? Is that in line? Are the drivers compensated? Um in the right manner compared to what they believe their impact is to justify that those eyeballs, why those eyeballs are tuning in and what they're charging for. I don't know if I made any sense just now, but no, you did. I, we don't, we can move on. Cause I'm sure people are tired of drivers talking about getting drivers getting paid, but <laughs> I think I know I to sum it up. You, you made a great point. What is the percentage of value that you put drivers? And that's really where, the discussion has to be and it's you know driver contracts are not public so until you know unless that's made public or you have you know internally they're able to to make some sort of guarantee on that percentage or whatever you know i think it's going to continually be a topic because i think drivers in the boom time made a lot of their income because sponsors wanted to be there right and sponsors mm-hmm. were normally tied to the driver right and the driver represent the sponsor and was in marketing programs and so on and so forth. And as you've had those leave, I think that naturally was going to erode driver value. And now there are drivers that are hired far more, you know, for their ability to simply drive the car because mm-hmm. there isn't the sponsorship there that's tied to that, 
at the pointy end of the Cup Series. Um, and can I, I think frame this in one more way? Go can ahead. I frame this in one more way? Yeah. Let's just say that NASCAR gets from this billion dollars. NASCAR gets a certain amount of dollars that they send to each team, and they give it. To, they're giving a team six million dollars in one year, and they're saying. For this $6 million, we're compensating you for elevating our sport, right? That's, that's the compensation because, yep. we're, you know, you're, we, we need, everybody needs to raise eyeballs to the sport. That's how we're justifying what we got paid. So we got to keep those eyeballs coming. And if they take $6 million and they only give hundred grand of it to the driver, what does that say about where – like, is that tell you that the, the driver just doesn't contribute at all to the eyeballs that we could do? We could still get these same eyeballs. We could still continue to justify a billion dollar, uh, a billion dollar TV contract with no matter who's driving the car. Yep. And maybe that's the truth. Maybe that's the case. Maybe the car is the show. <laughs> maybe the team is the show. Right? And maybe the drivers are completely interchangeable. I don't know. Valueless, apparently. Completely Just valueless. Nothing there. Nothing there. Sorry, guys. Sorry, us. Guess we'll just head home. <laughs> That's like the doomsday scenario from uh, from last week, if you listened last week. So we'll leave that one. I'm sure it will continue to come up. And as I said at our first show of this year, my big topic that no one was talking about was the enthusiasm amongst the top TV contract, the teams getting what they want, but there will be one team, one group that will lose out on that, and that is uh, the drivers. So, <laughs> yep. Um, Rip let's through a couple on. others. <laughs> yeah, let's go through some other some other NASCAR stuff. NASCAR uh, put out that they've been testing their EV race car test mule. It will be debuting at the Clash. David Reagan has been driving it. Did over three. It did three hundred and forty laps over three days. Bob Pockers reported. Um, it's got the compact utility vehicle body, not specific to a manufacturer, sort of a um, crossover body for you car buyers out there. Um, nobody knows what compact utility vehicle is, unless I don't. I've never heard that one. So no. Uh, lap times on the third day were within a couple tenths of a cup car. Um, a couple tenths of a second from a cup car. And uh, it looks like it'll have lights, and that looks fun. So they're also evaluating hydrogen combustible engine, uh, where NASCAR was over in, um, what is it, Japan. Japan. Investigating this, studying H2 racing. Cool side note on that, Alejandro Agag, who founded Formula E, has been working on a hydrogen racing series, as well with the Saudi Arabian government. So an investment fund who helped... Um, from the E get off the ground. So I got an idea. What about What's a that? racing what about a racing series that allows mm-hmm. all of these propulsions? No and way. And we just see which one can do the do the best. You mean wait, hold on. Let me just stop you there. You mean basically you just say it has to have four wheels, pass run on tires, but you we're gonna run a five hundred mile race, may the best car win. When I where I come from, I I'm, I grew up in in the Midwest, so we're you know sometimes we're awfully simple folk. And at the around the short tracks where I grew up racing, we call that the run what you brung class. No way. <laughs> yes. 
Can we? When can Global Motorsports just go to run what you brung? And for all you budget-minded people, you spend too much money. Uh, who cares? Let's just see a run what you brung. I want it. I want that. I desperately want that. I. This is what motorsport was built on. You go back to the earliest days. It was about trying to build the best thing that you could humanly possibly build, right? And now we've gotten to this boxed-off area of your, your joke. We either have too many rules or not enough. Yep. Um, and with what's happening with electric, hydrogen, obviously in the internal combustion engine, it's like, wait a second. Maybe it's all coming back to us. Maybe we can go back to the idea of what is the fastest way to do 500 miles at Daytona? What is the fastest way to do 500 miles at the Indianapolis 500? What is the best way to get through 24 hours at the Rolex at Daytona, at the Le Mans 24 hour, at the Nürburgring 24 hour? Damn, that's a dream. I don't know if it'll happen. (laughs) I got all excited for a second. Speaking of crossover in racing, uh, Colton Herta let it be known that he tried to land a deal for the Daytona 500. Didn't happen for him. That was at Rolex 24 Media Day. You'll be able Which to see means him he was short by anywhere from 500 to 750,000. <laughs> <laughs> I actually think not just money. Think about just cars. Where are you going to get a car right now? I, I actually believe truly, you know, you've got a bit of a, a shortage in just who can put a car together. Um, no, in that stop. sense. What? What? Okay. You, what kind of bullcrap are you talking about? Well, what? I'm just saying. I I think yeah, there I mean, is if never you walked up with half a million. There has never not been a, a car for somebody <laughs> who had the money. That's true. <laughs> he was short. I hope to see Colton in a car in a in a NASCAR. I think that would be cool. Um, I don't know why he didn't get a ride in Daytona, but chances are yeah. it's because he didn't have between five hundred and seven hundred thousand. Speaking of driver contracts, that was a large one uh, that he had accomplished in IndyCar and currently going through. So. His was he was on the, the other end of the spectrum in that world. Uh, also sponsorship related, Kyle Busch let it be known that his Joe Gibbs Racing deal fell through when they put all of their faith in signing Oracle as a sponsor. This is from Jeff Gluck. His quote: "I'm being frank, and it might bite me in the butt, but they put all their eggs in one basket with the Oracle deal." Now that was rumored at the time that Oracle was the prospective sponsor, um, and it was rumored for a couple months uh internally within the sport and then eventually externally and you know that would have been a big deal huge get for nascar to have a tech company of that that size um who is it larry allison is the head of oracle he also funds mm-hmm. the sale gp deal that i went and did a deal with last year um big in the sailboat racing and such that would have been massive sponsor of obviously red bull f1 team uh but it didn't happen so yeah, I feel like that deal petered out, and we didn't before we ever really got to hear any juicy details. So that's too bad. Check out the athletic Jeff Gluck article to get more of the juice there. Uh, maybe it's because they did the Red Bull deal. I don't remember the timing exactly, but that could have been it. Speaking of Red Bull and ter- well, title sponsors slash the idea of terrible names. I referenced it at the beginning. Could we be entering the era <laughs> of horrible team names in F one? Well. Welcome to Visa Cash App RB, the replacement for AlphaTauri, potentially. Um, I, I don't even know where to start. I mean, I don't <laughs> mind title sponsorship, and I don't mind inter- – but when you just negate to have any identification whatsoever in the name, I just don't understand. 
Um, and also, side note, is this Red Bull sort of putting on a uh, fake mustache <laughs> for their second F1 team entry? Yeah. They are um, getting called out hard on that. So Zach Brown <laughs> and McLaren have been going after them, and I think this is going to continue with the budget cap and the idea that they're basically two F1 teams sharing resources. Uh, you know, just a little background. Alpha Tori, which used to be Toro Rosso, before that was Minardi. They were out of Fienza, Italy. Fienza. Um, and they were the Red Bull B team for a long time. And really just for Red Bull to have drivers and engineering talent and that sort of thing but it's gotten so close and with the budget cap it's sort of starting to run into an area where they're essentially running four cars um and i think that's some of the contention and they are getting closer together and so you also have a little bit of the the political undertone where you have a full self-sufficient team like andretti that would like to come in but instead there's a group of two f1 teams that can't come in so because you know they have two F one teams, and therefore the secondary team is never going to be allowed to outrun the first team, right? Um, unless something went completely cattywampus. So I get that. I should also say this article was from the race. Visa Cash App RB would be the worst name in F one history. The ads on the article plastered every single ad on this article is from Stake F one team taking over the grid. Also a terrible F one name. <laughs> <laughs> their logo looks like uh they went to fiverr and said make me a logo for my instagram ad company exactly yes but it's take f1 team which was um is sort of a what does placeholder be- well that's that it's a betting app drake is in oh, it oh yeah okay okay um and kick i think is somehow related to steak or they're they're within they have a steak in kick or kick has a steak and steak i don't uh, hold on a second hold on a second is this what what, is is this what like second tier f1 teams are doing now because they don't have top tier manufacturer support to just name themselves after the manufacturer that they're selling the naming rights of the teams (laughs) to their primary sponsor i'm surprised that we've never seen a nascar team really do this i have actually same thing and the I've suggested it. In fact, I've pitched it before to sponsors, and I've never been able to sell it. it. Mm. It's because um, Buddy Lab wasn't there yet. I, I know. I'm trying to remember who we pitched this. I pitched this to somebody. I think at either at Hillman Racing or somewhere uh, that we were going to include the the sponsor name and the title and in, in the name of the race team. Gosh, I cannot. <laughs> Didn't remember. go anywhere. Uh, yeah, I should say I was going to tell you that. This is sort of a placeholder stake F1 team before Audi comes in 2026. So there was some rumors Audi was pulling out, but it sounds like they're committed. They're coming in 2026. They'll be taking over Sauber, which became stake, which then becomes Audi. So I don't see I don't see stake being there when Audi wants to be there. Uh, they're just cashing in for two years. But some of the biggest news, Landon, uh, in Formula One this week was that Barcelona is to be replaced by a Madrid hybrid street course. Now, there's no other way to put this other than the design of this racetrack from an aerial view looks very much like a gentleman's appendage. Um, And I just think they're probably going to have to change this thing because if this ends up anywhere in terms of merchandise, um, trophies. I don't don't see it. I don't know what kind of 
appendages just, I mean, you've been if looking you were at? Just to look at the bottom part to be sort of, uh, you know, the Describe region it in more below. detail for me, please, Parker. It would be the ra- the round bits <laughs> region there at the bottom, um, and then sort of the the spherical bit goes out. There are and, there are children and listening. There are my mother becomes, is listening to this. Yes, that, that's, that beca- that's it looks enough. like a finger almost. That's enough. Um, it does look like it, it would have had Peronis, which is an add-on. Peronis disease is an add-on uh, NASCAR races all the time, but. It's, I, what, I think it, it's pretty easy. Where exactly, where exactly is this racetrack? They, so they're calling it a hybrid street course? Why is I it think a hybrid street course? Well, the bit there that would be the, the finger portion of the gentleman's appendage, uh, that is actually on like a like non-residential road area. Like it's just land they bought, and they're going to add some racetrack in there. It's sort of like um, Lamar. You know how Lamar is mm-hmm. – the circuit is one piece, and then you have mm-hmm. the rest is road, like actual okay. uh, streets. It looks like it's a similar thing. You're in streets, and then you go into an area where they basically built it, or like the Las Vegas GP, producer okay. Josh just said. So i surprised we're still allowed to record after what I've said about this. but <laughs> We haven't gotten <laughs> shut down yet? Yeah. That is the first time I've been able to say that term on the uh, podcast. I'm pretty happy about it. So – We'll see. Uh, it looks like a tight track as well. Doesn't have the big, flowy straights with the with the ninety degree corners like we've seen be so successful. So looks a little bit more like Miami, which means it'll be a procession. Um, yeah, I never thought I, gentlemen's look would be the <laughs> right one. Yeah, I mean, I feel like they ruin. They might have ruined one opportunity to have a really long, fast section by just having a. Uh, that's a little chicane on the backside. What section of is the that track? Um, I'm looking at the base of this. That would be what you're you talking cup about. That part with right. your hand. Yeah. Right. Okay. Just saying. <laughs> the base. The base bit. Yes. Okay. All right. A little let's, round um, down there. Wow, that was uh, <laughs> PG-13. Let's move to the next. Um, We've officially found Landon's limit. <laughs> Yeah, I just cannot. Uh, so Mark Hughes talked about the difference between Max Verstappen and Lewis Hamilton's driving style, um, as retweeted by F1 guy Dan. What do mm-hmm. you think of this, Parker? So I appreciate his knowledge, and I appreciate when journalists try to dissect a driving style. Um, but I... I struggled with it, and I think it's it's often these sorts of things are written by people who have never competitively driven race cars or have forgotten where race cars have gotten because there's a bit in this that's about being early or late on the brakes. Let me just help you all out with that myth. There mm-hmm. is no such thing, especially in Formula One. Braking in Formula One is a is a is almost a uh, binary approach, especially at your initial application of the brake. It is a full amount of pressure. At 90%, 90% of the corners they go to, it looks like a peak at full pressure using all the downforce, and then where they make their money is actually on the the releasing the brake. That is where really good braking drivers in IndyCar, in you know high downforce sports cars, prototypes, and Formula 1 make their money. 
they do it from the point of which where everyone's pretty usually close on that initial application but it is from that point onward as the downforce is releasing from the car how can you perfectly release that brake in tandem with that to allow the max amount of speed to be rolled to the apex of the corner and to slow the car down in the shortest amount of time without slipping the tire right that's the basis basically of every racing car but especially high downforce cars in this 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 essay mm-hmm. it basically says that <laughs> That Verstappen is earlier on the brakes versus Lewis being later, and then that allows an earlier turn in. I just I, I don't agree with any of that. So um, I personally haven't been able to see data that I trust well enough to make this determination between these two. I have obviously seen differences in corner approach, but I often think that more has to do with the car, and that neither of them are in the same race car, and therefore, especially in Formula One where there's so much differences between the cars. A slightly earlier turn into me could be a car that just has a bit of understeer and they're approaching, they're adjusting for that. Uh, a later turn in on a car could just be a car that actually has more stability and is allowing the car to be pitched in at a later, larger angle. Um, you know, I I love driving style stuff, but I don't think the way this was written really encapsulates what actually what we mean by driving style. Now, one thing I will talk about is he when he talks about early turn in versus late, some of that to me can be an area for driving style. And that is a driver that maybe likes to pitch a car with a little bit more wheel force, a little faster hands on the entry to set it on the rear tires, that sort of thing. Now that can also be dependent on car and design. But I think for, for my point of view, you know, that that's the areas that allow some of that driving style, but to talk about earlier late on the brakes, that is not the right term. There is no, Formula One driver currently in Formula One that is going to be there longer than 33 milliseconds that is considered an early breaker. That just does not happen. Do you agree or disagree? You seem to disagree with me, with your face. No, I think that um, what I agree with you on, I don't know. I think that you're trying to remove, I don't I don't know. I, I disagree with you in a sense that, like, I think that you're both kind of saying the same thing about braking, where it's just, it's, uh, the thing that I agree with what at, at the first part of this little essay was that the majority of time, and especially in road racing and high downforce sports car racing, Formula One racing, I think the majority of time for drivers to gain and lose speed on a racetrack is in the braking zone. It's just through the braking mm-hmm. zone. Even yep. in a Formula One car where braking is highly cap there's a ton of capability downforce all this stuff like you said it's it seems binary um it's down to milliseconds because their break their their brake zones are so short um uh, it's still that's where all the speed is gained to me in my opinion that's where the most the the most uh juice is there to squeeze i guess uh, to be squeezed <laughs> uh, and mm-hmm. so in that includes what you're saying the brake release, which to me is probably the 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 where I will agree with you is that it's the not the initial application of the brakes, but it's everything that happens after that: the modulation through the brakes, the re- brake release, the timing of it all, the yep. turn the turn in, and where you make it all happen. That is all of that coming together is the magic, right? So yeah, I mean. What I, what I don't, I think what I thought found interesting about 
um, Mark's breakdown here is his kind of blanket statement about Lewis Hamilton being a late turn-in driver, right? Putting a ton of, making a lot of ask of the rear tires on turn-in, on initial turn-in. Um, and then that sort of trending his team to always have to shift rear aero balance to the car um, and, you know, keep make it difficult for him to keep rear tires on the car. I thought that was a pretty interesting point. You know, I mean, I, I, I feel like I thought I saw that over the course of the year in the Mercedes and some onboard footage that I saw. Like, I, I wouldn't necessarily say the late turn-in part um, as much as the quick hands. It looked like Lewis is trying to carry a lot of high min, high mid-corner speed, um, mm. and with a car that wasn't turning really great mechanically with the front tires right like i thought he had a lot of wheel input in the middle of the corner and so if he's a you know if he's turning in really aggressively and causing his team to have to tighten the car up for him um and it's sacrificing his ability to rotate in the middle of the corner right now with whatever design car they're dealing with um then i could see that i could understand that but um you know, I didn't. I so I didn't think anything was standing out too like egregious to me in this letter. But, but you know, all, without like disagree getting with you. without have, getting I have to too, disagree. But here, that? here's why. Here's why I gotta disagree because I'm I'm sorry. There's just no way you would be allowed to be in Formula One right now in 2024 if you broke earlier. Like, car has to be driven to the maximum braking potential. It has to be you know that portion of me just. It negates everything else that's said. Now I can agree with you that the money, you know, that what I'm trying to say is that if I, if I took a 50 F1 drivers, current slash test drivers, I guarantee you if they all in the exact same car at the exact same point in the exact same corner, they would all be within a fraction, almost an unrecognizable difference in terms of breaking point and application. Well, but hang on, no, you're this, no, you're so wrong. I'm telling you, you're not even. It's you're. First of all, the it's same like corner. what is earlier? Define earlier because they're I, like I get that it's F one. I get that they're at the upper echelon of talent and ability and yeah, race cars yeah. and all this stuff. But it's like they're it's still it's not they're still human beings. It's still machines. They can't. There's there's the deepest breakers and there's the earliest breakers and there's and there's people in between. Right? They're not all breaking at the same point. Even if it's down to a matter of feet, and we can see it in Fine. the data. Okay. Right. Like I'm just saying, I, look, I don't think anyone's inherent to be like a. Le- I guess, yeah, okay, there is going to be some variation, and I guess what is your percentage of variation is a good point. You bring that up. Right, I just like, think it's you, odd listen, to me to look, take two look top at how guys. We... It. It's ahead. odd to me to take two top guys and to say that there's enough variation in that breaking. Oh, my, my camera just broke. Hold on. There we go. I knocked it out. To say there's enough variation in that breaking to say that's a style difference in that initial application i just i struggle with it because that you know the cars can be so different i think all the other stuff you're talking about makes sense but to say earlier late breaker i just i don't i I mean okay let me let me put this different way maybe there's a box i'm talking a percentage of of three percent where it's like that's the break application area now is one sometimes a little later one a little earlier in there sure I'll give you that. 
but I don't think it's a it's a large enough difference to say that is a style thing. That is just simply one got the max out of that braking zone, and if they were able to carry that all the way to the corner, and everything that car was capable of doing that. The other wasn't, but I don't I, think I don't think that's a style thing. I don't think it's a style thing. I think there's a max breaking point for that car. There's a breaking point for that car, and then what you do from that point onward, that is where you make the money. Do you think that Mercedes? Do you think that Mercedes builds? To, I guess to what degree do you think Mercedes builds their car around Lewis's driving style, and to what degree do you think Red Bull builds their car around Max's driving style? I think the team will tell you they don't build it to either's driving style. <laughs> they just build the fastest car they possibly can. Right. So, do you think that's true? I think there. Or do you are think that they have up- to ultimately set the car up? Well, yeah, I'm not talking about the design yeah. of the car, but it, like ultimately, the driver's giving feedback on the setup. Do you think that the driver's driving style is influencing the setup at all? I think the setup 100. percent Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think the driver so- will ask for certain things. Yeah. <clears throat> So if I wanted to support what Mark Hughes is saying here, here's my mm-hmm. interpretation of what he's saying. <clears throat> is that Max fades the car into the corner more so than Lewis, right? I can see so, that, yep. And, and actually, you and I have had this conversation. That's not. I'm not trying to compare myself to Max Verstappen, but you know <laughs> how... You know how I've talked about how how difficult it is for me to be a 99.9% breaker, threshold breaker, but how True. good I am at being a 90% threshold breaker, right? And yep. that's why I'm good at those tracks where you fade a car into the corner, right? Like New Hampshire Phoenix. and yep. Phoenix, right? But then you take a track where you have a straight-on braking, and I, that's where I struggle a little bit more, right? Mm-hmm. Like you and I have had that conversation. What, so my interpretation of what Mark is saying is that Max is really good at breaking a car with some angle, fading it into the corner and having some kind of like lateral requirement of the car under braking. Mm-hmm. And he's really good at maximizing the speed in that braking, in that style of braking zone. So he's shaping almost every corner to, to sort of fit that style. And then obviously his car has been balanced to accommodate that. And then on the flip side, Lewis is a type of driver who is going to break a little bit deeper because he breaks straight, right? That's mm-hmm. that's physics. You can yep. if you break straight, you can break deeper, right? Like you can slow down faster. The tires don't like to be slowed down and scrub with slip angle at the same time. Right? So what he's saying is Lewis breaks just a little bit deeper, but he breaks straighter and then he turns in harder. Right? To okay. me, that sounds like I AJ Allmendinger. Yep. Right? And that's what yep. I'm and, – and, and that's where I was saying that, like, to me, Lewis Hamilton breaks a little bit later. If, if I'm interpreting Mark, and this is tying it together with what I think that I saw with onboard footage from last year, he breaks a little bit straighter, a little bit later. He gets the car slowed down quicker because he's able to keep it straight. But then he's asking too much of the car through the middle of the corner. Right? He's making the car – He's asking for like a really high minimum speed through the corner and and the car's too tight to do that because yeah, he yeah. has this aggressive turn in, so they have to have the car aero balance tight to be able to support that. And uh, and he's probably asking for too much 
min min speed, right? Um, that I don't know. It's I, no, that I, is kind I, I actually I think you're starting to make sense for me because I it is historically known that Max can deal with a little bit more of a oversteer condition on entry. So we know that we know he likes a car that has a very positive front end. That is a given. That Sergio Perez has talked about struggling with that. You know the car being just too loose at times, oversteer, whichever term you want to use. So I get that, and I think that that's where the the terminology is the problem. I guess is what we're having an issue with. Saying you're, there's early and late breakers, no. I don't want fans to think like one guy just has all the balls in the world and just like oh, I break twenty feet later every time. It's like it's not the case. It's yep. shaping the corner differently. That's yep. what we're trying to say. Yep. And it's what you're strategic. saying is. Exactly. Lewis is shaping the corner differently than Max does, and that's their natural tendencies. Just like you just said, you and myself, I'm definitely more of the straight-breaking, high you know, high deceleration rate sort of driver. I struggle more at places like Phoenix and New Hampshire because it's fading the car in, and I, I struggle by using too much brake often. So like that for makes me, total sense. Here's the triggers for me. Let, let, let me simplify the difference between fading a car and then decelerating a car. And and being a, a short track late model guy, I think this is what trained me, right? Like, mm-hmm. what I look for into a corner is just that weight against my shoulder, right? Like, I want to feel a heavier weight on my shoulder, so that means I know I'm pulling more G-forces, I'm making more grip with the car, so that's me looking to fade the car into the corner, right, by feeling it on my right shoulder. Where a driver like yourself or A.J. Allmendinger, who comes from a road course racing background, right, you might be looking for the weight in the seatbelts to gauge yep. like you're slowing the car down as quickly as possible, right? So I'm going to get in as deep as I can and slow it down as quickly as possible, and then I'll worry about turning into the corner. Yep. Um, and that's that could be the feel that those drivers are looking at. So, you know, to me, it seems like I, I, I feel like I learned something about Max Verstappen by reading that because – I'm like, oh, I didn't know he fades the car into the corner quite like that. Um, <laughs> you could have felt been like great. I knew that about Lewis, <laughs> but I think I've probably watched yeah. Lewis a little bit more than I've watched Max. What we established is we are basically Lewis Hamilton, Max Verstappen on this podcast in driving style. So <laughs> you're Max, Here, I'm Lewis. Last note. And guess what? We should just give some numbers to the fans out there as we move on. Lewis Hamilton entered F1 in 2007. Max Verstappen joined in 2015, yet they owned 14.3% of all race wins in F1 history. Since 2007, they have won 47.1% of all the races. Since 2015, they have won 67% of all the races. So that's, we, that's we, you and I are dominating F1 if, we, uh, <laughs> if we're put there. So that's all there we need go. to know. I would have beat you there, though, uh, by the way, <laughs> by a couple years. Amazing. <laughs> Even, even though our base is the same age. Uh, just some things quickly to run through. Something nice I saw on social media uh, this week was Simon Pagano uh, released an update since he's been out of a race car from that mid-Ohio crash uh, with concussion-like symptoms and has been fighting those symptoms since. Um, you know, We hadn't heard much from him, but he said he's still working through it and that the are days that are better, still some that are tough. And obviously he looks and, and is able to you know do things in life, but there are certain things that are just not correct yet. And so he's continuing to work on it, um, wants to get back to 100% to be able to go out there and try and uh, run in top-level motorsport. So wishing him the best and hoping he can uh, you know continue his recovery and, and speed it up and see if he can get back. So hmm. that was a vicious wreck, and you hate seeing that. So... 
Wishing you the best, Simon. Um, more global motorsport stuff out there. Some sort of special kind of stupid. It must be. If you move near a racetrack and then <laughs> after living next to this racetrack decide, you know what I don't like? Racetrack noises. Well, this <laughs> is the situation from the Highway 68 Coalition, a group of nearby property owners near Laguna Seca Raceway in Monterey, California. The group is suing to end racing entirely, arguing that the circuit doesn't abide by the environmental ordinances. They claim the circuit is a public nuisance. This might be the oldest story in all of motorsports right now. Track is there half a century, longer sometimes. People move in and decide they don't like the track, but the track was there before you. So get, and I won't say the full thing, but you know what? <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, man. man. It's, we'll it's, see. A, a, it's a tale as old as time. Yeah, I'm looking at some of the responses here from Laguna Seca. Uh, Ross Merrill, who's the president of the FLS. Now, I, I should mention Laguna Seca, I believe, is basically like a publicly owned facility at this point. Um, on a state park is what my producer Josh is letting me know. So that's right. It's on a state park. And so Ross Merrill, who's the president of the FLS, said, we live here too and share the same concerns as our neighbors about noise and traffic. Our team of experienced business and community leaders are eager to move forward to revive this staple in our community for decades for future success and revenue generation for Monterey County. FLA, FLS states that it is bound in the concession agreement to the historical usage of Laguna Seca recreational area and the existing policies limiting attendance and sound of the park and is required under contract to invest in the facilities and infrastructure, including a sound study and noise mitigation. Um, a spokesman for Monterey County told sfgate.com that it is unfortunate certain individuals have chosen to file a complaint against the county concerning operations of Laguna Seca and that it does not recognize any merit to the allegations and expects a favorable legal conclusion. Uh, FLS means friends of Laguna Seca. I don't know. <laughs> is this one of those things that like maybe BlackRock is behind it or something trying yeah, to buy trying up to a bunch of valuable property more houses that's <laughs> that's deep state conspiracy stuff right there as they they go on their spree of buying housing around the United States um, but let's work this out tell Coalition 68 whoever you are shove it and let's go back to racing I would love to see a NASCAR race for the goodness sake I've said that for many years I think if we ever can't go to Sonoma for some reason Two hours the other way, basically, from San Francisco is Laguna Seca, one of the coolest tracks I've ever been to. So um, the Paris-Dakar, it completed. And actually not the Paris-Dakar anymore, just the Dakar rally. Sorry. I'm going to – and I'm going to be honest with you. I don't – you might be the only person other than Kyle at the Money Lap who is crazy enough to follow this race in its entirety. <laughs> Uh, the I, only thing uh, I can contribute to Dakar is that an American one. He did. Which is all Ricky that matters. Yep. So it's his second one, uh, which is pretty cool. Congratulations to him. Uh, and your favorite racer in the cars, Carlos Sainz Sr., was able to win in the cars. So good for him. Junior was there to celebrate, by the way. They did a nice shot. Of, I told you. Uh, he was there. Jet. That's what I meant. <laughs> Doing some off-season racing. Yeah, no, that's what I meant. It was cool for him to be there. Yeah, he was, he was there. Uh, just some last 
bits. I'm headed to the Rolex 24 this weekend. I'll be pit reporting late into the night uh, on NBC USA. Coverage starts Saturday at 1.30, I want to say. Um, but some record speeds at the qualifying at the Roar before the 24 this past Sunday. Pipo Durrani set a new track record for prototypes in the GTP class at 132.6. They also had record qualifying times in GTD Pro and GTD. It was super cold. Um, the GTP cars are going over 200 miles an hour on the straightaways, which is pretty awesome. It looks like Cadillac has the, is the car to beat in the GTP class. Can Porsche or Acura figure it out? I don't know. We'll see. Uh, the field of drivers, insane. Uh, we've already been over that, but just so you know, it's insane. Um, and tomorrow, Wednesday, or when you listen to this, Wednesday, January 24th, there'll be a new column for myself in the Money Lap newsletter about the Rolex 24. Also, Landon, you and I won't be the most famous people that have graced Daytona after this. You know who's going to be there? Who's that? Patrick Dempsey? No, he's already been there. Brad Pitt <laughs> will be at the Rolex 24, apparently, I'm being told. So we will see the F1 movie that's being filmed has a is apparently involves sports car racing uh, and that a grizzled veteran comes out of sports car racing to save F1. I don't know some of those lines. Sounds like Driven, <laughs> the documentary. Sounds like Driven. Okay. <laughs> Brad, Great don't mess it up. We're counting on you. Don't make us look bad. We're all counting on you. All right, man. That's it. In the Money Lap Podcast. We're out of here. Peace. See you next week. Oh, Kyle! No! Wait a second. <laughs> you we ran out of time again, <laughs> Kyle Bush. Next time, buddy. Thanks for listening to the Money Lap. As always, check out themoneylap.com for the best five minutes in motorsports or sometimes just the coolest stuff in motorsports. Delivered directly to your inbox three times a week. Check us out on YouTube. We're growing fast over there. And, of course, Twitter, TikTok, Instagram. We're all over the internet. We're spreading the word of how cool motorsports is. Check us out. You could get like an 04. 04 for how much? I mean, at the auction, 3,500 bucks. Oh, yes. Let's do it. Oh, how many miles? 91,000. Oh, it's nothing. a baby. It's nothing. I wonder if you would well, cost it, me to it's ship it. As is, which is probably typical because of the age. Uh, let me see what the. Oh my gosh, it's in great shape. Can I? Oh my god. You small dents, sunroof issue. Doesn't matter. I don't care about any of that. All I need is it to be working like well runs. that I can run it, t- tune up the engine, and make it into a drift Mercedes. <laughs>